And so let us hear then God's word, Psalm 109. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places, and let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. And as he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him, and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. But you, O God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens, I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed. But let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame. And let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, um, we just heard that this is one of the the hardest-hitting psalms, if you will, in all the Psalter. But let's start with this. I want you to think of a time where you've been slandered. You've been spoken about in some evil way. Now, maybe this is something that's happened recently, maybe a time you think in the past. Certainly, we've received some of that in regard to this conference. Um, surely there are times where we go home 
and a lot of slander takes place because of the people that we were with, either here at church or in other settings. Uh, There are people that maybe we knew in the past and we no longer have relation with them because they left in some way, maybe left the church or they got another job or, you know, whatever it is. And uh, maybe you hear how much they have spoken against us as they've left. Certainly you can think of other situations. But in this context of people slandering, David now gives us these words. And some of them are very hard-hitting and hard for us to know how to handle. And so we're going to try to handle it and answer some of those questions here in this psalm. Now, as we begin, let's do what we've done for each one of these, do a brief review of the bigger picture. And so if you look at uh, the handout here from Pava Robertson, uh, again, we have five books, as we call it, here in the Psalms, and uh, these are arranged according to what's in the text. We're not imposing this. And so book one are Psalms 1 to 41, and we looked at Psalms 1 to 8. Um, The overall theme, there are many themes here, but the overall theme is David is established as king in Zion, but there's a lot of opposition. In book two, Psalms 42 to 72, we looked at Psalms 42 to 48. And in this uh, section here, the theme is David is king and he is more established. Things are better, but there's still opposition. And the biggest difference is now there is more of an outward focus speaking to the nations the truths about God. In the third section, we have Psalm 73 to 89, and we looked at Psalm 73 and 74, and the theme here is devastation. The northern and the southern kingdoms are sent into exile because of their sin. Then in book four, you see our general chronology here. We move forward in book four to them being in exile. So Psalms 90 to 106 emphasizes the things that are most important when you lose what is uh, something that you've been used to. So they're in exile, and they need to go back and relearn what is most significant. And so we looked at Psalms 90 and 91 in that way. And so now we come to book five, Psalms 107 to the end, and we're looking at Psalms 107 to 117, this, this go through. And our theme here is the idea of restoration. God has brought his people back to the promised land, But it's more than that. There is this forward focus. There is an emphasis here in this book on the coming Messiah in ways you don't see as much in the earlier Psalms. It's there, but it's more so here, especially with Psalms 110 and 118. And so as we go generally, chronologically, through Israel's history here, And again, there are many different themes, but here are the overarching themes for each of the books. We see God's promises, we see growth, we see God protecting them, God providing for them, being gracious and merciful, but we've also seen sin and judgment and exile and so forth. And so here in book five, then, we started with Psalm 107, and if you want to flip over to the page here that is the diagram for book five, uh, Psalm 107 simply is God brought everybody back. This is good. This is great. And so, Psalm 108, we can have hope and confidence. We can praise our God because he is faithful to his promises, even when we're opposed, even when we have sinned and deserve the hardships. Okay? And so this is certainly true 
even after the exile. We talked briefly last time about some of the sins of Israel, even after they returned, and yet we still see God's grace in the midst of it all. All right, now, last time I spent a little time talking about their sins, let's also then bring in this point. After the exile, even after they rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the wall, even after they put aside those foreign wives and they started doing some things better and so forth in that way, things weren't quite the same. The temple was rebuilt, but it wasn't like Solomon's temple. Okay. Zerubbabel's there, but he's not really a king. Life is certainly better now, but it's not like it was in the days of David and Solomon and so on. And so because of this not as goodness, if you will, it's forcing the Israelites to look forward. Yeah, you can look back to the glory days, but it's forcing them to look forward to something that is better. And that, of course, is the coming of the Messiah. And so once again, these Psalms are leading us specifically to Psalm 110, but also then even beyond to the New Testament. And so as we turn here to Psalm 109, it has its own message that we can isolate and we can talk about, surely. And yet it's anticipating the next Psalm, the coming of the son of David. So we saw in Psalm 108, if you will, this backward focus. We went back to Psalms 57 and 60. Here, Psalm 109 takes us back to David and his life. But again, it has this forward focus. So here's a brief summary of the big picture. Let's turn now to our handout on Psalm 109. And if you look on the back of the second page, this is where I start some of the outlines. And as I've said many times, the Psalms are so well written that it's most of the time hard for us just to give one outline because each one gives us uh, an insight into what's there. And there is no way that I can cover all of this together. So I've put it on, on paper here for you to be able to take home and look at it more yourself. This is God's word. We need to understand it. And so I'm trying to help you in that way. So just briefly then... You'll see the first outline is subdivides the pronouns. Verses 1 to 5 use the pronouns they, them, and their. Verses 6 to 19 shifts to he, him, and his. And then you go back to they, them, and their in verses 20 to 31. And so this is one way to subdivide it. You look at the next one, some say, okay, that's fine. But verse 20 really fits better, even though it has they, them, and their. It fits better with that middle section. And uh, I think it's a transitional verse, so that, that's, that's fine. You see the next one, it subdivides the last section. And the next outline subdivides all the sections. And that's helpful too. The last one here on this page connects verses 1 to 5 to verses 20 to 25. And then the other verses, you can see how that's done. And then on the last page, I gave you a much more detailed analysis of this psalm and it's just it's so well written you see some of the chiasm there in verses 6 to 15 you see the abc bca format um you know david didn't just think this up in five minutes um maybe he even took many days to put this together 
All right. Now, lastly, here in this way, if you look at the statistics, as I say every time, look at the names of God. This teaches us something. And so here, Yahweh is used seven times, Elohim twice, Adonai once, and then the pronoun. So 29 times altogether, God is referenced. Now, what is also striking here is that David refers to himself, notice, 32 times, and note where the verses are, not that middle section. But the middle section is made up almost exclusively there of the he, him, and his, and then you have the you plurals 23 times. Notice also that 27 times David is asking God for help. 27 imperatives. When somebody is slandering you, you can understand why David is asking God so many times for help. So once again, this isn't just academics. This is just trying to understand what God has given us here. And a few statistics give us some direction. All right, well, let's now turn to the title. And we have one here, obviously, and it's kind of a normal one, you might say, to the chief musician of David, a psalm. All right. Now, we haven't talked about the chief musician for a while. You remember that David appointed three of them, one from each of the families of Levi. And so you had Asaph, Haman and Jeduthun. And so David then gave this poem to one of those men. Maybe they worked together on it. David either just gave the poem and they put it to music, or he already had some music and then they arranged it for all Israel to sing. Obviously, it says here it's written by David, just like Psalm 108. So in other words, we're now pushing 500 years after David wrote this psalm. This psalm is not placed in book one or book two. It's placed here in book five, very specifically. But remember, we're going on 500 years after David initially wrote it. So that means, similar to what we saw in Psalm 108, we need to understand what David meant when he wrote it. We need to then see how it applied to Israel after the exile then we need to see how it applies in the era of the New Testament, and this one specifically does, as we will see. And then, how does it apply to us today? So there's several steps here, but if we start at the beginning, it'll help us to get there. All right, lastly then, um, it says here that it is a psalm. And as I've said many times now over these months, that this word assumes musical instruments. This isn't just sung by a choir. This isn't just a poem. It is a choir and an orchestra of sorts. And so Israel then sung this psalm, a psalm that many Christians would rather we not even read. But what should we learn from this? Well, let's start here then in verse 1. And again, as I've done, I'm giving you a more literal translation so that we can pick up some things that are often obscured in the English. And for those of you who are interested in the Hebrew, there it is. But if you're not, hey, I hardly ever reference it. So here it is. O God of my praise, do not keep silent. David jumps right in here and begins by addressing God. And notice... He's praising God. Oh, God of my praise, the one that I praise, you might say. 
Now that's quite striking. I read the whole psalm here a few moments ago, and much of the psalm is about judgment, about wanting judgment against his enemies. And so all this talk about the wicked, all this talk about judgment, we have to see that David begins the psalm with praise. But notice he also ends the psalm with praise. If you look briefly at uh, verse 30, I will praise Yahweh exceedingly with my mouth, and in the midst of many I will praise him. So David begins and ends these imprecations. Remember, that's the big fancy word for asking God to punish the wicked. He begins and ends all of this with praising God. God is the object of his praise. And the reason why God is the object of his praise is because what he says in verse 31. Right? He, God, is standing at the right hand of the needy in order to save from those who judge his soul. God's on our side. He's with us. He is worthy of praise. At all times, and for many different reasons, but in particular, when there are people who are out to get us. And so for all of David's harsh words... We must see it in the context of praise. Now, if you look then at the second line here in verse 1, we have the first of these 27 commands or petitions, imperatives that David utters. And this one is, do not keep silent. Okay? Simply, God is asking God, excuse me, David is asking God to help him with the wicked. Do you see what this teaches us? (laughs) David is not ranting and raving. He's praising. And David is not taking matters into his own hands. He is asking God 27 times to help him. And so David's not going to bring about the curses. He is asking God to do so. And so David is leaving vengeance to God. He is pleading with God to judge them. But he basically says, God, do as you see fit. I am not going to become a vigilante. Basically, this is what David is saying. So as we, again, as we come here to this psalm of imprecation, you might remember that we had another one, not quite as extensive, but we saw one in Psalm 7. And I spent some time talking about the imprecatory psalms. We see again here what we saw in Psalm 7. David is humble. David's not taking matters into his own hands. He's relying on the Lord and he's praising. And so for those who say, oh, Psalm 1 and I, David is just mean. He's just angry. No Christian could ever pray these things. He starts with praise and he's asking God for help. He's not ranting on a bullhorn at some demonstration. He's not canceling his enemies on his social media accounts. David is humble. And he's relying on God to render justice. Very important for us to see this. All right, well, let's look now at verses 2 and 3. And now we come to the reason why. Why is David asking God not to keep silent? Verse 2. For, or you could say, because the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of treachery against me have opened. They have spoken with me with a tongue of falsehood. And with words of hatred they have surrounded me. 
Then they fought with me without cause. You see how all that fits together. There's parallelism here, right? The rhyming of ideas in the two lines in verse 2. And they're so similar that we probably could call synonymous. Some might want to uh, talk about some of the differences there. But notice also the chiasm. We begin the first line. The first line, I should say, ends with the verb. The second line begins with it. And then as you bring in verse 3, notice how that line ends with the verb. So this back and forth arrangement and so on. Uh, here in the text. So <clears throat> David is asking God not to be silent because many other people are not silent. Five times he says about their words, the mouth of the wicked, the mouth of treachery, they have spoken words of hatred, okay, and, and I skipped the one there, tongue of falsehood. Okay. Five different times he talks about their words. These weren't just passing comments. This wasn't just some perceived slight. This was a big deal. Okay? This would be like cyberbullying or something to that effect. Okay? And notice then the language he says about how they have surrounded him. And then in that last line there in verse 3, they fought with me. That word for fight is often used in the context of war or battle. And this, this is a big deal. So let's go back to where I started. And you think about the times where people have slandered you. Maybe you've experienced something to this degree, maybe not quite so serious, but we've all experienced it in one way or another. And certainly all of us have participated in slandering too. <laughs> but this is, if you will, the other side of it. And when people do it to us. Notice David also then ends verse 3 by saying, it's all undeserved. It's without cause. It's not true. They are lying. Their words are wicked and treacherous, but also false, he says. Okay. And isn't that how often slander is? It's just not true. <laughs> or it's maybe taking something that is true and twisting it to such a degree that it's really not true anymore. So, let's bring in verse 4. Instead of my love, they accuse me, but I, prayer. David not only is guiltless, he says, but he's actually done the opposite. We're not talking about some stranger who is slandering David. We're talking about people that David knew. Close friends, maybe family members, you know, something to that effect. Hey, David loved them, he says. He showed them love. We don't have enough detail to know exactly how that was done, but David loved them. But they returned that love with accusation instead. And so note the evil of these people and their sin. But notice also how David says, I did not respond that way. Not only did I not deserve it, and they're, they're returning evil for good, but then I did not respond evil for evil. I responded with prayer, he says. But I, and note how blunt this is, but I, prayer. And your English translations are going to smooth that out in some way, and understandably so. But notice how abrupt he is. It's the exact opposite. I'm praying for them. Now, certainly David is praying to God, but I think we have to assume here that David is also praying 
for the good of the wicked. That David is praying for these people that he's loved. And he's done it maybe many times for possibly many years, depending again on, on who these people are. You know, you often hear people say when it comes to imprecatory psalms, that, well, that was just the Old Testament. Things are totally different now in the New Testament. We pray for the wicked. Right? Jesus told us to pray for our enemies and bless those who persecute you. And that, that's totally different. That wasn't what it was in the Old Testament. <laughs> well, that's just not true. The summary of the law given at Mount Sinai is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard it said to you, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you, okay, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That's not a quotation of the Old Testament, hate your enemy. That's what the religious leaders were saying. And so Jesus is actually going back to the Old Testament and explaining to the religious leaders something that they had misunderstood. The Bible does not say to hate our enemies. It says to love our neighbor and so forth. So I think we have to assume here that David at some point in time had prayed for his enemies, for their good, that they would repent, that they would be forgiven, that they would be restored. But obviously, this psalm does not emphasize that point, does it? He is now praying for their judgment. And that's where we in the New Testament sometimes forget that it is still okay for us to pray for God to judge the wicked. That should not be our only prayer, but it certainly needs to be a part of it. Praying for judgment, praying for vindication is a New Testament idea. Think of Revelation 19. Right? We all know the Hallelujah Chorus, right? Everybody stands and sings Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Well, it's based on Revelation 19, and the reason why they're rejoicing and saying Hallelujah is because God judged the wicked. <laughs> so, this is a New Testament idea too. So anyway, <clears throat> let's not miss... David's attitude, he is filled with praise, he is asking God to help, and he's praying even beyond just asking God to help him. And so it sounds like to me that we should emulate David. It sounds to me like David is being righteous here. Okay. And so when we face slander... Let's follow his lead here in this way. Now, certainly there are other passages to bring in. I've just done so. But we can't just ignore Psalm 109. And so David here, then, is opposed by those he loved. And notice this word, accuse. You see it again in verse 6. And it was down in, uh, I never wrote this down. Let's see, verse 20. Uh, Nine. Sorry, I'm not seeing it off the top of my head. I was going to write it down. I forgot. But it uses it again later. Okay? And that's the word actually for Satan. David says, I've loved them, but they've Satan'd me. They've acted like Satan. So verse 5. Then they said against me, evil instead of good, 
and hatred instead of my love. You see the parallelism here, right? Both lines are rhyming, saying the same basic thing. Again, I think they're close enough to call them synonymous. Some might argue synthetic, but they're still very similar. You see the ellipsis? They said against me is assumed in the second line. So our point here again is pretty straightforward. These wicked people are saying these words. They are evil. They are hateful. And it's the opposite of what David had done. All right. Now, I think verses 1 to 5 are pretty straightforward. What's difficult about this psalm is just the fact that it's an imprecation. There's more. There's verses 6 and following. And how do we understand that? But the point here is pretty straightforward as we begin. These people are speaking against David, even though he didn't deserve it, and he did the opposite. So we ask God to say something, to not remain quiet, to do something, to act to protect David, to act to vindicate David. David is humble, and he's depending on God through it all. He is not being mean. And so when the same kinds of things happen in our lives... Let's do the same thing. Let's be filled with praise. Let's be filled with petition, asking God for help. Let's be filled with prayer more generally. All right, now, let me try to transition us, basically, to the next section. And we'll look at the next section in detail next week, Lord willing. But let's um, transition here for the rest of our time today. Verses 6 to 19, as I've already indicated to us, transitions us from they, them, and their to he, him, and his. So look at that. Look at verse 2. They have spoken. Verse 3. They have surrounded. They fought. They accused. Verse 4. They set. Right? You see all that. Now verse 6. A point against him, a wicked man. Let an accuser stand against his right hand when he is judged and so on and so on. Right? Everything shifts there. So it sounds like that David now is speaking about a particular individual who is slandering him. Yes, there are others who have joined with this man. They're on the bandwagon, you might say. But there's one person in particular that's been spearheading this slander. So what do we know about this man? Well, if you look at verse 6, it talks about appointing a man, an accuser standing, okay, and then judgment, verse 7, guilt in verse 7. All this language is the language of a courtroom. And so it's possible that David is talking about something that is happening in court. But he also may be just simply using the language in, in, in it's a court in general, maybe the court of public opinion, you might say. Look also then at verse 8. And his office, let another take. Well, obviously this person was in a position of leadership. Maybe he was some uh, uh, person in the army. Maybe he was someone in the temple. Uh, We don't know. But it was someone who was in a position of leadership. And then note verse 9, he has sons and a wife. This man is married. And he has children. And then especially as you bring in verses 4 and 5, David knew this person. He wasn't just some abstract person online. He actually knew him personally. And so 
Um, that's about as far as we can go with the clues. <laughs> but these are some clues to help us to understand what David is dealing with. And so it's possibly in a court, but at the very least, David is accused by those he loved, maybe friends, maybe family. These people are malicious, and he asked God not to be quiet, but to render justice and to speak up for him in this court, whatever kind of court it is. And as I said here a few moments ago, these people are acting like Satan. This person and those following him are really the seed of the serpent. So let's now try to specify and do a little guesswork. Who was this? Well, typically you have two answers to this question. There are some who say that this is during the time of Saul when when David was running from Saul. And, And maybe he is referring to Saul himself here. Remember Doeg, the, the, the Edomite that killed all the priests and such? Maybe that's who it is. Some have talked about the men of Ziph. Remember who are trying to turn David over to Saul or Nabal or, you know, whatever. This time here in 1 Samuel. Maybe this is uh, what David is referencing. And certainly Saul and others spoke much slander against David during that time to make sure that everybody thought he was public enemy number one. The other option that people will point to is Absalom, David's son. And think of Ahithophel and Shimei that were part of that in particular. Now you might remember when we looked at Psalm uh, Psalm 3, Psalm 3 makes specific reference to this event with Absalom. And we looked at 2 Samuel chapters 14 to 18. And it may very well be that Psalm 109 is written in this context as well. We just can't say for sure which it is. But then you have people who say this. That David is actually not referring to himself at all. That the words that we have here in Psalm 109 have nothing to do with David's life. And that David is speaking prophetically. And he is speaking about the days of Jesus and Judas. Now, there's no question, and we'll see this more next week, that Peter applies Psalm 109 in Acts chapter 1 to Judas. So there's no question that it takes us there. And some will say, well, you know, David can't say these words. No sinner can pray these words. Only Jesus can pray imprecatory prayers like this. And so it cannot apply to David for that reason, some will say. Well, I do think it's a bit odd that um, David would say all of these words and it have nothing to do with himself. It's certainly a possibility, but the way you read the psalm, it doesn't sound that way. You know, when you read prophecy, like in Isaiah or Jeremiah or something, you know, and, and it's speaking of something about when Christ comes, you know, many times it's very obvious that he's not talking about his particular situation, but something in the future. And you don't get that idea here in Psalm 109. I think it's also rather odd that the compilers of the Psalms would put this Psalm here if it had nothing to do with them after the exile. 
Now, you could argue, well, it's put before Psalm 110 because everything's pointing us to Christ and so forth. Okay, fair enough. But it does seem a bit odd that it would not apply to them in their scenario after the exile. Okay. You remember, we looked last week at Ezra 4, and the peoples of the land were harassing the Israelites. And remember, they, they wrote a letter to Artaxerxes and so on and so forth. And so it is likely that there was one person in particular that was slandering Israel, and they're applying the words of David in their day, roughly 500 years later. So um, I think there was some present application for the people then, crying out for help. So as I'll say a bit more next time, um, Psalm 109 clearly applies to Jesus and to Judas. Some have even suggested Jesus prayed this in the Garden of Gethsemane as Judas was coming with the soldiers. Maybe. But I think we can take this psalm and make application for ourselves. As David did, as the people after the exile did, even as Jesus did, there is something for us to learn here. And that's what I've been doing all along. As we think about those who've slandered us, who've lied about us, Maybe some of us have experienced this in a court setting, but certainly all of us have experienced this in the day-to-day setting. Maybe some of those people who slandered you, you thought were your friends. Maybe they were family members, church members. And so as you think about this situation, let's do what David did. In the midst of it, praise God. What is our initial thought, right? Get him, God. (laughs) But no, praise God first. The first word out of David's mouth is praise. The last word out of David's mouth here in this psalm is praise. That should characterize us too. Okay. And then the second word out of David's mouth is God help me. Not sick of God, but help me, Lord. Rest in God. Do not repay evil for evil. Praise God and ask God to help. Leave vengeance to God. Do not take matters into your own hands. Now remember, Paul teaches us in in Romans 12, that we are to give vengeance to God. Let him take care of our enemies. But in chapter 13, he says, one of the ways God takes care of our enemies is through the magistrate. So there, there is a place for us sometimes to, to go to court and, and maybe deal with someone who has slandered us. There's a place for that. But even so, our attitude should be one of humility and trusting in the Lord. And then thirdly, praise God, ask him for help, and then pray for our accusers. Pray for those who are acting like Satan. Pray for those who have harmed us. Pray for justice. So, here are a few thoughts for us as we begin this psalm here today. And so, Lord willing, next week, we will look at these more hard-hitting words, the imprecations themselves. And as we do, Don't forget what we've just talked about. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. 
And though sometimes your word is, is hard for us to, to understand and know how to apply and, and so forth, uh, we are thankful for it nonetheless. And in this case, Lord, we are thankful for, for this situation in David's life and how it is um, similar, at least in some ways, broadly speaking, to situations that we've faced. We're thankful, Lord, for the example of David. And we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to be filled with praise, to be filled with prayer, to rely on you and rest in you when there are people who hate us and who, are, who oppose us. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from doing like David tried to do with Nabal and take matters into his own hands. Send us Abigails to stop us in our sin. And help us, Lord, to truly leave vengeance to you. And so, Lord, we um, are thankful that um, you have given this to us, and we are thankful that you have given us your spirit to strengthen us. We're thankful, Lord, too, that you have given us one another uh, to, to encourage, that we might encourage one another to respond rightly to sin and to slander. And we pray that in all things, you then would extend your kingdom, that you would grow us in grace, that you would bring forgiveness and salvation, but also justice and judgment against the wicked. And so we pray all these things then for your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.